0: Welcome to the program, Navigating the Therapeutic Advances for Spinal Muscular Atrophy. My name is Eric Cannon, uh, AVP of Pharmacy Benefits with Select Health and Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm joined today uh, by Dr. Basil Daris, Chief of Clinical Neurology and Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Today's program uh, information approved for 1CME, CNE, uh, A. APA, you can download a PDF of the presentation under the event resources tab on the left side of your screen under the headshot. Uh, You will be redirected back to the landing page after the webcast to complete the post-test and evaluation. You can then download or print your certificate. The program is provided by North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, an HMP company. And this program is supported by an educational grant from Biogen. Looking at the learning objectives, uh, today we're going to talk about recognizing the clinical, economic and psychosocial burdens uh, that result from SMA. Uh, We want to apply recent findings on the pathophysiology of SMA to analyze new and emerging therapies uh, with regard to their mechanisms of action, indications, efficacy and cost effectiveness. Uh, We'd also like to develop system-wide strategies to improve the recognition and treatment of SMA, including patient and provider targeted education of recent therapeutic developments. With that, uh, let me jump into uh, a a real broad overview of of spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, This is the most common genetic cause of early infant death. Uh, And and if you look at it, the incidence, it is fairly rare the incidence is one in about 11,000 live births. Uh, it, it's caused by a mutation of the SMN1 gene. And uh, as we look at spinal muscular atrophy, basically we have five types, which are based on age of onset and clinical course. And I'm not going to go into those right now. Dr. Darris has uh, a few slides where he'll review those different five types. Uh, if we quickly just look at the mortality though, uh, this can be a devastating uh, genetic disorder. Sixty-eight uh, percent mortality within two years of birth, and eighty-two percent mortality by four years of age, which is fairly significant. One of the things that, if you if you talk to parents, and uh, as a parent, I can fully uh, understand this. Uh, they're. Delays in diagnosis. Uh, First off, if you think about that first child, you may have had lack of awareness about what those developmental milestones are. And so a lot of times it's hard for parents uh, to really understand or or maybe distinguish uh, normal from abnormal development. And then even once they get in to see a pediatrician, there's a challenge of a differential diagnosis. SMA newborn screening, uh, Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, in 2018 recommended adding SMA to the recommended uniform screening panel. So those set of tests uh, that we regularly do on each uh, newborn infant. Most of the states have said it's going to take them one to three years to implement this SMA newborn screening. It is currently in place in four states, uh, Massachusetts, Utah, Minnesota, and Missouri. Uh, And if you look at some of the benefits that Hearst has put out there, identify 364 babies with SMA each year. Uh, But I think as you start looking at some of the benefits here, prevent between 16 and 100 children with SMA type 1 from needing a ventilator each year, and then prevent between 14 and 68 deaths due to SMA type 1 each year. There's a significant psychosocial impact uh, that comes with SMA. Uh, if you look at this slide, this this is uh, the output of some focus groups that were done with 96 participants, so people with SMA or the parents of infants with SMA. And y- you look at some of the impacts. You've got difficult treatment choices. You've got significant impact on the family finances. You've got loss of independence. Uh, y- you can see on this also limitations on social activities, uh, loss of functional ability. The, the parents going through this experience, the whole range of emotions and, and issues, and one of the things that parents have, have kind of pointed to as being the hardest thing for them is the lack of sensitivity that sometimes exists within our healthcare system so i think it 's a, it's a good reminder for all of us to to recognize maybe beyond some disease states out there, there is a significant social, psychosocial impact uh, on on the families. Let's look quickly uh, at the healthcare costs of patients with SMA1. Uh, and in this study, they looked at patients that had SMA1, uh, but that were not treated with nusinersen, And then they also looked at patients that were treated with nusinersen. The costs that I'm showing on the screen are excluding drugs. So uh, for those people that were not treated, uh, their regular healthcare costs annually were about $137,000. You can see the breakdown there between, and that's mainly inpatient costs. Those that received Nusinersen, their total healthcare costs were 92000 Now we'll get in and talk about the cost of the drug uh, towards the end of the presentation, but uh, you, you see more of an even distribution about the sites of service uh, in that Nusinersen population. The same two populations here, but looking at uh, how their visits break out in numbers. And so on average in SMA, one patient had 4.6 visits uh, or inpatient stays. Uh, compare that with the new Sintersen, uh, where I think, you know, some patients are being admitted to administer the drug. They had 14.1 stays within the hospital. Fewer outpatient visits and then fairly close on the other visits. If we look at the resource utilization, uh, this is a study that was done comparing infants with SMA-1 to infants that had complex chronic conditions, so those would be things like epilepsy, muscular dystrophies, cerebral palsy, some kind of cardiovascular malformation. Those, all of those types of things were lumped into this complex chronic condition, so not mild disorders, fairly significant diseases. Uh, you can see the SMA cost annually at $150,000, compared to these complex chronic conditions at $112,000, but even in in the perfectly healthy, no uh, complex kind of chronic condition, down close to $20,000. Again, SMA length of stay, 4.4 fold increase in length of stay, uh, and and actually a 4.2 annually increase in hospitalizations. With that, I, I'm going to turn the program now over to Dr. Darris for his portion of the program.
1: Dr. Uh, thank you, Dr. Cannon. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, spinal muscular atrophy today, but uh, you need to know that SMA is a, is a generic term, because it includes, uh, in addition to the uh, chromosome 5Q classic SMA, it also includes the non-chromosome 5Q uh, SMAs. 5Q classic SMA is a genetic disorder characterized by degeneration and loss of motor neurons in the anterior horns of the spinal cord and brainstem, leading to muscular atrophy and weakness. It is one of the most common neuromuscular conditions in infants and children, and it is the most common fatal genetic disease in infants, with an incidence which is about uh, 1 in 10,000 live births. There's a number of studies that gave us different Uh, incidences in different parts of the world, but uh, the accepted number this time is 1 in 10,000, which means that that given that we have approximately 4 million births in the United States per year, uh, we're talking about 400 to 700 SMA births every year in the United States. In our state, Massachusetts, we have approximately 75,000 births per year, which translates into 6 to 7 SMA births per year. Uh, It is important to remember that the vast majority of the babies who are born uh, will develop uh, SMA type 1, approximately uh, 60% if they have the the, the mutation. Approximately 27% will develop SMA type 2, and about 15% SMA uh, type 3. Uh, The adult form of SMA known as type 4 is less than 1%. Again, going back to the incidence Of births in the United States, we're talking about between 200 and 350 new SMA type 1 births per year. As far as the SMA uh, carrier frequency is concerned, it is approximately 1 in 54, you know, like 150, which is only second to cystic fibrosis. It seems to be more common in Caucasians, and it's less common uh, in African Americans. Again, with uh, an average about uh, one over 50, which translates into about six million carriers in the USA alone. SMA was described back in 1891 uh, by an Austrian physician by the name Guido Wertnich, who published a paper in 1891. Uh, but also was Dr. Hoffman, who was a German physician who published uh, uh, on this on this on the same disease uh, in 1893 and this is why we use the term Burton-Hoffman disease. But the classification of SMA uh, was developed gradually over a number of years, uh, starting back in 1961 by two physicians at Boston Children's Hospital, uh, Randy Byers and Betty Bunker, uh, who published uh, a classic paper on infantile muscular atrophy, uh, who described uh, primarily t- t- type 1 and also uh, a milder version of SMA known as type 2. It was in 1991, 100 years after the original uh, description of SMA by Werner Hoffman, uh, when the classification of SMA into three main types, type 1, type 2, and type 3, was established. Uh, type 1 is the most severe form with onset during the first six months of life uh, and limited lifespan, uh, given that before they developed of treatment, the babies used to die, most of them before the age of two years. Then we have SMA type 2, uh, with onset between 6 and 18 months, uh, with uh, uh, approximately 70% of these uh, children being alive 25 years of age. And then we have SMA type 3, uh, with onset either before or after the age of 3 years, who, have, uh, who are able to walk and have almost normal lifespan. And then there are two other types known as SMA type 0, with prenatal onset and symptoms at birth, and most of these babies die shortly after birth within the first few months of life. And then type 4 is the adult form of SMA, with onset after the age of 21 years, normal lifespan. The classification of SMA, however, is based on the uh, best uh, motor uh, performance and to a lesser extent on the age at onset of the disease, uh, with understanding that we're dealing with continuous severity across a phenotypic spectrum. Going back to the types of SMA, uh, we talked about SMA type 1, the most severe variety, known as werden hoffman disease. Those are also known as non-sitters, because they never sit unsupported. As I said, they die before the two years without aggressive treatment. Then uh, type 2 is the intermediate form of SMA, uh, also known as sitters, because these are the children who never stand or walk, but can sit at some time. And, uh, as I said earlier, uh, their survival uh, is better than type 1 with approximately 90 per, 98% of them being alive at uh, age 5 years and about 70% living up to the age of 25 years and beyond. And then we have SMA type 3, which is the mild version of SMA. Uh, these patients are known as walkers because they are able to stand and walk at some time in their lives. And we talk about the subclassification in 2, 3a and 3b, depending on whether the onset is before or after the age of 3 years. Coming back to SMA type 1, uh, these are the babies who present with uh, low muscle tone, hypotonia. They have frog leg position of their uh, lower extremities because of the uh, weakness and hypotonia. The weakness tends to be proximal more than distal, the legs more than arms. However, there is some facial sparing in SMA uh, type 1. On physical examination, we find hyporeflexia. Most of the babies have no reflexes, and they have tongue fasciculations. But they have no CNS symptomatology. They are not encephalopathic, and they uh, but they decline very, very fast uh, without aggressive uh, treatment. So this is uh, images of uh, children with SMA uh, type 1, you can see the very alert face, the frog leg position of the lower extremities. They tend to have paradoxical breathing because of the weakness of intercostal muscles and in preservation of diaphragmatic strength. And they have this bell-shaped uh, chest, but again, they do not have any central nervous system symptoms or signs, they're alert, they're not encephalopathic, they smile, they interact with the parents, uh, but nevertheless, they have this uh, severe disease with limited survival uh, before the development of treatments for SMA. SMA type 2 uh, is of intermediate severity It's also known as Dubovich disease, uh, with onset uh, before the age of 18 months. Again, these are the, the children who are able to sit unaided but never walk, uh, but some can stand with support. They can be subclassified type 2A and 2B, as you can see on this slide, uh, depending on whether they lose or maintain the ability to sit. Uh, and um, and they have weakness proximal and symmetrical, they can have time fasciculations. And they also have this very characteristic tremor of the hands, uh, which creates a baseline artifact on EKG, and it is not of any uh, major clinical uh, significance, but nevertheless is sort of typical of SMA type 2, in some cases of SMA type 3. These children with type 2 SMA they have a fairly static course uh, with slow decline over time. And they end up with respiratory failure and scoliosis, which can be, can complicate the the, the, the clinical uh, course of these uh, children uh, with survival we described earlier. And here is a child on the left with uh, SMA type 2, uh, he is a sister, and on the right we have two children. One is sitting on her wheelchair. He has a, she has SMA type two. But even the girl who is sitting next to her on the right hand side, she has she also has SMA, but she has is able to walk, and therefore uh, she has SMA type three. Again, uh, these are the, the patients who may who are able to stand and walk, uh, and may show little or or no decline uh, over time. They look more like a muscular dystrophy, uh, and they usually have no clinically significant associated respiratory deficit, but some lose the ability to walk over, over time. Unfortunately, somewhere between 30 and 70% of the children uh, lose the ability to walk, but they do have almost normal lifespan. So, uh, for many years, we relied on EMGs and muscle biopsies uh, to make the diagnosis of, uh, of, of SMA. And uh, this is an interesting slide because it shows the timeline of SMA with the, dis- with the description, uh, back in 1891, uh, and the theta classification 1991. Uh, but it was in the early 90s when the gene for SMA was mapped to chromosome 5Q, and the SMN genes were discovered by Dr. Melke's group in Paris uh, in 1995. Now we understand the genetics of SMA very well, uh, following the uh, discovery of the SMN gene On chromosome 5, SMN stands for survival uh, motor neuron. And humans uh, have two SMN genes. They have uh, SMN1, which is uh, on the right, on the telomeric side, as we say. And then we have SMN2, which is like a defective version, uh, like a pseudogene, which is on the centromeric side of this uh, region on chromosome 5Q, where there's inverted duplication. And um, this is probably the, the the reason for why humans develop uh, SMA. Uh, humans they have uh, SMN2, which uh, differs from SMN1 by uh, by five nucleotides, with one of them being very important. A transition of a C to T in position 840 in exon 7 of the SMN2, which creates an exonic splicing silencer, which modifies the splicing of the SMN2 leading to the exclusion of exon 7 during the vast majority of the splicing events. As a result of that, approximately 9-95% of the protein produced by SMN2 is defective. It is truncated and gets degraded by, degraded by the cell. Uh, but only 5-10% of the protein produced by SMN2 is functional, it is full length, and this is why uh, humans uh, d- develop SMA. Humans we have SMA; they have what we call a homozygous deletion of SMN1, but they can have one, two, three, or more copies of SMN2, which produce small amounts of full-length protein and therefore allow the fetus to reach the end of the pregnancy and the child is born. But unfortunately, at some point, will develop SMA. Uh, other species do not have SMN2, and because the absence of SMN protein is Inconsistent with survival of the fetus during during the pregnancy, the these other species do not actually uh, develop SMA. So, 5q proximal SMA is an autosomal recessive condition uh, caused by loss or mutation of the SMN1 gene and retention of the SMN2 gene. We talked about uh, SMN1, SMN2, which encode the survival of motor neuron protein, and then about the fact that SMA is caused by decreased levels rather than complete loss of the SMN protein, leading to selective dysfunction of motor neurons in the spinal cord and brainstem. Uh, again, total absence of the SMN protein leads to embryonic lethality. We uh, we, we talked about the fact that uh, uh, SMA patients, not 95% of them have a deletion of exon 7 in both copies of this gene, Uh, We simply say that 95% have a homozygous deletion of SMN1, and this is what causes SMA. We talked about SMN2, and the fact it produces a small amount, uh, 5-10% of full-length protein. Now why we have these different types of SMA, different degrees of severity? That happens because in SMA type 1, 80% have one or two copies of SMN2. Patients who have SMA type 2, the sitters. Uh, 82% have three copies of SMN2, and patients who are able to walk have SMN type 3 the walkers. 96% have three or four copies of SMN2, and rarely they have five copies. Patients who are carriers, they have one copy of SMN1 and zero to three copies of SMN2. Uh, normal individuals, they can have more than two copies of SMN1. Uh, two, most of them have two copies, of course, of SMN1 and zero to three copies of SMN2. Now, but rarely some, some normal people can have three copies of SMN1. And there are also what we describe as normal individuals, at least at the time of ascertainment, who were found to have zero copies of SMN1, but five copies of SMN2. You would expect these this individuals to develop SMA because they have no SMN1 copies, but because they have five copies of SMN2, it seems that's sufficient to rescue the phenotype and prevent the development of the disease. So, we talked about uh, the different number of copies, and what is important to know is that there appears to be an inverse correlation between SMN2 copy number and the severity of the disease, uh, meaning that when uh, a patient has a small number of SMN2 copies, the disease is going to be uh, more severe. And here's the distribution of the SMN2 copies. Uh, let's say in type one, you see that most patients, we said before, have two copies of SMN2, but very few we have only one copy, and those are the ones who develop SMA type zero. And then some of them have three copies, and these are usually stronger uh, type one patients. In SMA type two in the center, you see that most patients have three copies of SMN2, the uh, the blue column, uh, but they can have either uh, either two or four four copies of SMN2. And then patients who have SMA type 3 walkers, they have either three or four copies of SMN2. It's approximately 50-50. But what's interesting here, you can see that in every type there is a blue column that indicates the three copies of SMN2. So if a baby is born and they rep- and we test the SMN copy number and the baby has three copies, it would be very hard for us to predict the phenotype because you can see they're going to have either SMA type 1 or or SMA type 2 or type 3. So it's very hard to predict the presentation because of the overlap between the different types and the fact that you can find, let's say, uh, two or two or three copies uh, in uh, every type of SMA, uh, or even four copies. So uh, the reason for that is is not totally clear, uh, but we suspect that all SMA 2 copies are not equal because there are probably mutations that modify the production of full-length protein for SMN2. There might be also phenotypic modifiers that modify the expression of the disease. So, 95% of our patients, they have a homozygous deletion of SMN1, but approximately 5% of the time, we send the test, and we find that our patient has only one copy of SMN1, which means that that patient, in theory, should develop, or should be just a carrier and not a patient with a disease. In this five percent of the patients, we have what we call compound heterozygosity, which means that what appears to be the normal allele, in fact, is uh, is a mutated allele. Uh, it's just that the mutation in this in this particular second allele is a small scale one, either a missense mutation or a stop mutation, duplication, uh, and so on. So uh, when if we have a situation where our patient looks like SMA, but the S, the, the, uh, the genetic test comes back as a carrier, we should ask for sequencing of SMN1, looking for a small mutation that would, would give us the compound heterozygous that would explain uh, the, uh, the the phenotype. Uh, as far as the SMN protein is expressed everywhere, it's a 38 kilodalton protein, uh, which, de- which is localized in the cytoplasm and also the nucleus of all cells. It seems to really to be located in GEMS, uh, which stands for Gemini of Coil Bodies. And if you take a look at the number of GEMS doing immunistic chemistry, you find that it correlates inversely to clinical severity, but this is not a clinical test by any means. The SMN protein is important uh, for the uh, synthesis of the, the SMN complex, which in turn is also is very important for the uh, assembly of the spliceosome. The spliceosome is basically a molecular machine. That removes introns from the pre-messenger RNA uh, to create messenger RNA, um, and, and after after that happens, it seems to be to leave the spliceosome complex and, uh, and be deposited probably in in gems. So the S protein plays an important role in, the, in small nuclear ribonuclear protein biogenesis, and we talked about the spliceosome assembly. And therefore, it's important for pre RNA splicing. The SMN may play also a role in transcription and other cellular processes, such as axonal mRNA trafficking, transport in motor neurons, and perhaps in other processes in the junction and muscle itself. So, it, if you do, if you stain um, a neuron for uh, SMN protein, uh, you find it's not only localized uh, in the body, the cell body of the cell, as you can see on the left, you know, the green. Stain, uh, but it also, we see green stain also in the axon, and uh, it seems to localize in the axon and the, and, and, and the growth cone and it seems to move bidirectionally. But the SMN protein also shares with actin, which is involved in motor axon pathfinding and outgrowth during development. The SMN protein must be very important also for the normal function of the muscular junction, and the evidence from that comes from a number of sources. One of them is morphology. If you take a look at the, at the left, you see normal neuromuscular junctions. They seem to be bigger, big. They seem to have this uh, complex type of appearance. Uh, some people will use the term "perchel-like" appearance in the muscle junctions uh, when when they are stained. But on the right, you see in a patient who had uh, who has SMA, you see that the uh, neuromuscular junctions are small and they are not very well developed. So the morphology seems to be different. In patients who have uh, SMA, also if you do electrophysiology and you uh, stimulate uh, a motor nerve a patient with SMA, uh, you may find a decrement uh, the way we find it in myasthenia gravis. And many of our patients complain complain about fatigue, and that's very common. And uh, this is uh, why uh, the term synaptopathy has been coined by uh, Dr. Monani at Columbia uh, University, indicate that. Uh, the muscular junction is not normal uh, in SMA. Uh, the SMA protein seems to, to be present in not just in the spinal cord, but also in the brain. You can see here the hippocampus. So it's expressed everywhere. We have ubiquitous expression. And, but the reason for the selective vulnerability of the spinal cord motor neurons remains unknown. We talked about the SMN2 gene and this, but the fact that it is an important phenotypic modifier but it also allowed the creation of animal models for, for SMA by introducing a number of SMN2 copies into mouse SMN uh, knockouts. As I told you, uh, mice normally and other anim- animals do not develop SMA, but we can engineer an SMA mouse. It's known as SMN Delta 7 mouse, which is uh, has a very severe phenotype with death at 14 to 17 days. In addition to being an important phenotypic modifier, the SMN2 gene has, a therapy, has become a therapeutic target using SMN2 splicing modulators and upregulators. So, the goal of most drug trials in the field of SMA has been to increase uh, the uh, full length SMN protein production from the backup SMN2 gene. And more recently, we'll try, there have been efforts to, and successful efforts to replace the SMN1 gene by using gene therapy. So, so SMA is a unique transnational disease and the reason is that the genetic defect seems to be the same in all patients and we have clear pharmaceutical targets. The therapeutic strategies for SMA included neuroprotective strategies with medications like Gepapentin or Iluzol, which have not been very successful. There have been also efforts with, uh, to amplify the production of SMN protein by using HDAC inhibitors like phenobutyrate, hydroxyurea. Valproic acid and, and so on. and a lot of a lot of work went into clinical trials, uh, which were uh, were not successful uh, for a number of years. In 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 year 2000, NIH targeted SMA as a potential treatable disease. So here's been a number of clinical studies at uh, Boston Children's. Uh, the most important one being the natural history study by the PNCR network. Uh, we have enrolled a large number of patients, as many as 500 start going back to 2004 and uh, coming to 2019. But we, our our goal was really to uh, develop uh, treatments for, for SMA um, with, with different uh, approaches. Here you can see that many of these uh, trials have failed. When you see an F means the trial has failed or has been terminated. So it was around 2011-2012 uh, uh, the main efforts of the PNC network and also uh, other sites around the world where to to increase the inclusion of exon 7 uh, using antisense oligonucleotide technology or to do gene therapy to replace the SMN1 uh, gene in, or use small molecules like RG7916 to uh, modify the splicing of the SMN2 gene. Coming to the antisense oligonucleotide treatment, uh, the, again, the effort was uh, to increase the inclusion of exon 7, and a number of researchers at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory uh, screened a large number of antisense oligonucleotides, and one of them was found to induce uh, long-term retention of exon 7 after intracerebral ventricular infusion in SMA mice. It initially was named uh, ASO 1027, and uh, and then SMNRX, um, now it's known as nusinersen, And when it was given intraventricular acid in mice, the, it did increase the inclusion of exon7 by as much as 90%. So the uh, the SMNRX uh, is an antisense oligonucleotide, nucleotide, which uh, has um, methoxyethyl chemistry. Uh, it seems to, it seemed to correct the splicing disorder in SMN2, resulting in production of fully functional SMN protein in model systems, in mild and severe mouse models, it also provides phenotypic and pathological benefit when delivered centrally, intrathecally, or interventricularly, and it seems to distribute broadly to small cord motor neurons after intrathecal delivery in in non-human primates. It seems to have a long half-life in CNS tissue, uh, more than uh, six months in animal models. So initially there was uh, a single intrathecal dose Study in a number of centers around the United States, uh, Boston Children's College University, University of Utah, and also University of Texas. And we administered a single dose of 1,369 milligrams in a small number of SMA patients, and there were no safety or tolerability issues. However, when the analysis of the motor function results uh, was conducted, it was noted uh, that uh, using the Hammersmith uh, scale, that the patients who received uh, 9 milligrams, uh, the purple line at the bottom of this panel, they seem to have an upward trajectory as far as their uh, change in the Harvard score is concerned. And this led to a multi dose ascending uh, study where patients received a number of doses, uh, different uh, amounts, like 3 milligrams, 6, 9 milligrams. Eventually, we gave a, a dose as high as 12 milligrams. And this was uh, to assess the safety and tolerability of multiple intrafical doses and also to evaluate CSF, plasma, PK and clinical outcomes uh, in patients with either SMA type 2 or type 3 with their two or three copies of smn 2. So these patients they receive either two or three doses uh, over a relatively short period of time and it, it appeared as if we're uh, starting to see uh, efficacy. When one of the uh, patients with type 1 SMA who had been treated when in nurse passed away and uh, spinal cord analysis was, uh, I'm sorry, pathology was performed. Uh, it was clear that the antisense oligonucleotide uh, standing in green here was entering the cells in the spinal cord and there was production of the SMN protein. The red stain indicates SMN protein. So this was in fact in, in evidence in a human uh, individual who received was an infant with SMA type 1 who unfortunately passed away and, and were able to examine uh, the spinal cord. The This led to a, a study known as ENDEAR, uh, a phase 3 study in SMA infants, which were randomized two to one to receive either nursing, nursing or a SHAM procedure. And this was a global study to assess uh, not only efficacy but also uh, safety and tolerability as well. Uh, but all patients developed 12 milligrams with four induction doses uh, followed by, uh, by one dose every four months is maintenance. We used the Hammersmith Infant neurological Examination uh, to assess uh, these developmental milestones and quantitate uh, the results. And uh, when the an interim analysis was performed uh, in the summer of 2016, the results were positive because the percentage of patients who achieved a motor milestone response, which means we were able to acquire milestones was 41% in the nursing group versus 0% in the SHAM control group. Clearly uh, a positive result. In fact, at the end of the study, uh, the percent of milestone responders was 51%. Uh, When we looked at the CHOP intent uh, um, motor function scores, you can see there was uh, more improvement and less worsening in motor function assessment. In the nursing nursing treated patients, you can see a stained with uh, blue uh, columns, which is uh, remarkable, and this led to to the approval of the uh, of the medication. Eventually, a publication uh, that described the results of the Endeavor study who appeared in the New General Medicine in November 2017. Uh, there was also uh, a phase three uh, study in type two patients, known as Cherry study, it was a global study of 120 SMA children with SMA type two a 15-month duration, three induction, 12 uh, milligram doses, followed by maintenance once every six months. And again, the results were positive published in another publication in General Medicine. And as I said, the uh, medication was approved in uh, December 2016, and after that has been administered uh, to patients who have uh, SMA regardless of type uh, and age. There have been also long-term studies for uh, nursing nursing in later onset uh, SMA. And what we found was that uh, over three years, the uh, nursing nursing t- treatment resulted uh, in motor function improvements and disease activity stabilization, which is not observed in natural history cohorts. This result seemed to document the long term benefit of SMA. As you can see here uh, on the right hand side, uh, you can see the main change from baseline over about three years of treatment. In the Harmlessness Score in type two patients, you know they have the changes uh, plus 10.8 points. uh, In type two patients, was only 1.8 points in type three patients. But this particular scale has a ceiling effect. In type three patients, this is why the change is not not as profound as in type two. A clinically clinically meaningful change for patients who have uh, SMA when we apply this particular scale is three points. In the upper module. The improvement was 4 points in SMA type 2, and then in SMA type 3, the 6-minute walk test distance change was plus 92 meters, which is really remarkable given that in most muscular dystrophy studies, the target endpoint is only 30 meters. There were no children who discontinued the treatment due to adverse events, and it seems again that long-term new nursing treatment improved motor function and stabilized disease activity in these children with later onset SMA. And here is the trajectory that reflects the mean change from baseline in the six-minute walk test in this uh, large cohort uh, of patients. You can see when they're followed over a three-year period, we have this upward trajectory indicating improvement over time. Again, this is the average, the mean change uh, from baseline. There are patients who did not improve it as much as shown here, but nevertheless, it appears that uh, over time we have continuous improvement. And then another important effort has been the uh, gene therapy effort to replace the SMN1 uh, gene uh, using adeno-associative vi- virus, which it's, uh, a virus different from the adenovirus that we used back in 1991 to treat the cycle defect in a patient by the name Jesse Gelsinger, who unfortunately passed away after the treatment. This virus is smaller and it's sort of uh, it's it's non pathogenic as far as we know. It has been tried in many clinical trials with remarkable safety and long term expression. This particular viral vector, known now as AVXS101, uh, is able to deliver across the blood blood-brain barrier and, and into the spinal cord and designed not to integrate into the genome of the patient. It has a hybrid CMV enhancer and a chicken bed acting promoter with the human SMN. Once the DNA in the center of the vector, and on the right-hand side, we have the other elements, like the A tail. This particular vector also has these inverted terminal repeats, which increase the speed at which the double-surrounded transgene is transcribed, and resulting uh, in uh, early production of protein. So, the initial experiments were conducted by Dr. Uh, Faust and others in uh, Brian Kaspar's laboratory. Where they injected Delta 7 mice with this particular vector, and they noticed that when the treatment was applied on day one of life, the effect was, was good. On day five, we well, had a partial effect. On day 10, there was no effect, probably because of the fact that the SMA Delta 7 mouse is a very severe form of SMA and um, the only response to early treatment. But nevertheless, there was significant transduction of cells in the spinal cord and production of full length protein. These mice, they seem to be able. To move much better than the mice that did not receive the the vector, and also they seem to survive longer. You can see the survival curves. You know their, their life expectancy is really excellent compared to the uh, delta seven mice that dies within 14 to 17 days. And also they seem to gain uh, they gain weight uh, much better than the untreated animals. It was at Ohio State University uh, when Brian Kaspar and Jerry Mandel, in collaboration with families of SMA were able to advance a directed gene therapy uh, to an IND. The initial study, known as START, uh, to 15 SMA type 1 infants and have encouraging results. Some would say similar or better to a nursing. And there are ongoing studies like type 1 known as Thrive and type 2 known as Strong that are ongoing at our hospital and other sites in the US and more recently in Europe. And the results have been very, very positive uh, in the sense that infants who received the higher dose in cohort two, they seem to acquire more functions reflected in the ten scores. You can see that the trajectories are all, almost all of them are upward, exceeding that uh, crossing the 40-point uh, line, which is the limit of what babies with type one can do. So, uh, th- th- this results uh, in conjunction with the fact that many of these infants acquired uh, milestones like, uh, for example, uh, Eleven of twelve patient cohort were able to sit and assisted for at least five seconds, and also they achieved head control. Nine could roll over. Two were able to crawl, pull to stand, stand independently, and walk independently. So these are remarkable results compared to the history of SMA type one. Uh, this led to the approval of a gene therapy uh, known as Onasemnogene bepranavir, commercially known as Zolgensma, on May 24, 2019. However, there was a serious a liver injury warning was included in the label by FDA because uh, some of these patients were treated with uh, on a similar gene, they may develop uh, liver injury with elevation of the uh, liver enzymes. So, if it's pre-existing liver impairment, this uh, we should not treat over gene therapy, and uh, we need to monitor uh, liver function uh, periodically after the gene therapy has been, has been administered for at least uh, three months. And this is the reason why we we pre treated with steroids before the infusion and, all, and then we continue for approximately two to, two to three months. The indication and in uses was for pediatric patients at less than two years of age with SMA who have bililic mutation survival, motor than one gene. There's also a possibility of thrombocytopenia, so this is why we monitor cell counts weekly. And also, elevated troponin eye elevations have been noted. In, in some of the patients participated in the clinical trials, and for that reason, only we check troponin point eye levels, but we also perform decayed genocardiogram. Cardiomyopathy, however, has not been reported thus far, it was just a preclinical finding, and this is why uh, we monitor heart function. Before we do the infusion, we have to check AV9 titers, it has to be less than 1 or 50 uh, for us to initiate the treatment, because the tire is high, that's going to neutralize uh, the vector and therefore prevent the positive uh, effect of the, of, of the treatment. There is also an effort using oral SMA splicing modifiers, and one of them was produced by BTC and Ross back in 2012-2013 was a small molecule to treat SMA by altering SMA splicing. It did seem to extend the life of the SMA 7-14, 17 days to more than 150 days. A single-dose study was conducted in Europe on adult healthy volunteers Uh, but the study was placed on hold because of retinal toxicity. A second SMA 2-slice modifier, known as RG7916, is under investigation various studies in SMA type 1s, type 1 known as FARFIS, and type 2A3 known as SUNFIS and JUALFIS, which are in progress in the U.S., Europe, and elsewhere. The advantage of this particular intervention is that we have oral administration, and therefore we have systemic distribution. So, after 128 years, uh, following the, the description uh, of SMA back in 1891, and now we have two approved uh, treatments, but can SMA be prevented? Uh, it could be prevented if we treat early and pre-symptomatically, because once we lose those cells, in the anterior horns of the spinal cord cannot actually have any significant effect. There have been a number of studies. There has been a new presymptomatic pre-symptomatic study uh, for patients with two or three copies of smn 2 As you can see, the red line at the bottom shows there's also the Endear study. This is the high motor milestone score. And you can see we have that upward trajectory as and with improvement in these infants. But when we treat these infants before they have any symptoms, you can see that the, you can see the blue and the green lines uh, representing the babies, the infants we have, either two or three copies of SMN2. We can see that the motor milestone score uh, improvement is really more dramatic compared to the to the Endear study, for example. So these patients, they seem to progress uh, almost normally, particularly the ones we have uh, three copies of SMN2, and 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 we do feel that gene therapy should also work in presymptomatic infants. So at this point, I would like to turn it back to Dr. Cannon. Thank you so much for your attention.
0: All right, thank you, Dr. Darras. It's now uh, my opportunity to talk about system-level approaches that we can use to improve outcomes in SMA, and, and I think. This was a real learning for us. Uh, At the point in time that New was launched into the marketplace, uh, it it was an opportunity within our system for us to learn from each other uh, and and actually collaborate as a community. Uh, When we talk about the management considerations, and I think one of the things that we've always tried to take into account are the clinical types of things. So how well does the drug work, the safety of that drug. Couple that with what are the issues for the patient? So are we going to have an administrative burden? I think if you look at new Sinnerson and even on a sense machine, you've got some administrative things that need to happen there. Uh, you, you definitely, in the case of new Sinnerson, want to guarantee that you're going to have an adherent patient. Uh, couple that with uh, the treatment costs, and then making sure that the utilization and the patients that you're treating are appropriate. Um, I think one of the things that's important for us as systems, as managed care organizations, as integrated care groups, uh, we we need to look at some of the opportunities that exist. And so, A, we need to be engaging each other as stakeholders. Uh, We want to be working with uh, our partners, uh, both in industry and in healthcare, to increase the number of comparative studies. We want to improve that context conduct of evidence synthesis so that at the point in time we go to make a decision, we're ready for that. Uh, If you look at some of our challenges we're faced with today, there is this rapid pace of innovation. Uh, And and we end up with variable definitions and different evidence thresholds. I think uh, clearly as we've looked at some of the SMA trials, uh, very small populations, uh, and especially in the pharmaceutical world, sometimes we're not used to seeing trials uh, that small. So what are some of the lessons that I think we learned as a system? Expect delays. When Nusinerson was, was released into the market, we really hadn't thought through how we were going to handle that. We hadn't worked through how we were going to provide education and how we were going to coordinate and collaborate care. One of the things that really helped us, and once we put this in place, was really the establishment, and we call it a neurology s- subcommittee, but it's a, it's a multidisciplinary team. Uh, made up with uh, specialists from the university and our children's hospital. Uh, I think there's an ethicist that sits on there, uh, pharmacist. But that multidisciplinary committee really taking a step back and really talking about what does the evidence say and where uh, is it appropriate for us to be treating and, and who should we treat. That only works if you have an engaged senior leadership and uh, really engagement with your clinical specialist. So if if the neurologists within your system aren't, into the process of uh, of this collaboration, it's very hard uh, to pull these groups together. The whole idea of this is that we want to continue and improve upon what we already consider to be a very patient-focused system. And so everything done with that patient in mind, Uh, quickly, here's a checklist that was actually published in the Journal of Managed Care uh, and Specialty Pharmacy Journal. Uh, And and I thought it had some great bullet points. I'm not going to take time to go through all of them, but, you know, organize a team of clinical and operational experts. You know, what are those efficiencies that we want to identify in the administration of of the medication? And really kind of commit organizational leadership so that once a decision's made or once a pathway or protocol's identified. We know we have the commitment of the leadership within our organization that we're going to follow through with this. So, uh, on this slide, I've uh, kind of spelled out maybe the membership uh, that could exist within that multidisciplinary team. Uh, I've left nursing off this on accident. It wasn't intentional. But, you know, really patient representative, physician leaders, uh, clinical specialists, and, and then even what we found was it was really important as we started talking about very expensive drugs that we needed to have finance in the room so they understood what was gonna happening. And I think this really allows for us to have a shared decision-making type of system and really engage the stakeholders. So uh, if if we look at the treatment options, we've got Nucinerson, about $750,000 the first year. And then uh, on a Sensma gene, uh, about 2.125 million single administration uh, only for use in patients under the age of two. But I think I, I throw the costs out there because I think as we look at some of the cost effectiveness data uh, in the next couple slides, I, I think it's important to understand w- where is list price on these medications. So, in one of the studies I showed you early on in the presentation, we looked at the total healthcare costs and it was comparing two cohorts those that had SMA1. And then a second cohort, smaller cohort, uh, those that had SMN1, SMA1, and were treated with Nusinersen. Uh, You can see that uh, in that trial for those 45 patients, what they've done is they've broken down the mean costs here per patient per month. And so for the first three months, months one to three, the cost was over $190,000 per month, uh, times those three months. And then for months four through 12, what they found in the study was that the costs were about $37,000 per patient per month. If you look at that in total, uh, in aggregate, we're looking at almost a million dollars in treatment uh, just for the cost of the drug uh, broken out uh, for this patient across one year based on the data that came out of this trial. And I think, you know, again, we're looking at real world evidence that doesn't have all of the controls of a, of a clinical trial, but I think it does give us a good picture into uh, what the annual costs are per patient. So in 2019, uh, early in the year, uh, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER, uh, did publish a review of the treatments for SMA. Uh, and then later, about the 24th of May, they released another update. Uh, to that cost-effectiveness work that they had done, uh, you can see for New Centerson they used the cost list price for the second year of treatment, uh, and, and you can see the population that they put into their studies. What they were looking at is what should the annual price be to achieve a, a quality-adjusted life year, and so they've they've put that threshold between 100,000 and 150,000. For every quality adjusted life year gained. To hit that new Sinnerson would have to have an annual cost somewhere between 36000 and 64000 On a Sensma gene, you can see kind of where that breaks down, uh, 310000 to almost 900000 Now, they also looked at what's the cost uh, per life year gained. And, and again, they put that threshold uh, in order to achieve 100000 to 150000 on the sense, the gene comes in a little bit closer to where these pricing came out. ICER put the annual price somewhere between 710000 and $1.5 million. In, in, the, in the case of New Sinterson, uh upwards to uh, $72,000 a year. Uh, their final conclusion, uh, based on the current pricing, was that uh, the existing treatments would need to be discounted significantly, almost up to 80% to be cost effective based on the thresholds that they established uh, in in doing this work. So in conclusion, uh, SMA is a devastating genetic disorder. We got new treatments and they're showing positive results. I think uh, one of the things that I make sure that I'm always talking about with our leadership is uh, these are kids that most likely would be dead by 18 months if we we weren't having access to these great new treatments. Neither one of the currently available treatments are going to meet the ICER thresholds for cost-effectiveness. Care for our patients is greatly enhanced when we work in coordination uh, with multidisciplinary teams, and I think what we've found is patients are more satisfied. Some of those psychosocial issues uh, that uh, we went over at the beginning of the presentation, they're not having to deal with when we can get things into multidisciplinary teams. Uh, And then Many of the models recently used to review new treatments uh, for SMA, they can these these same multidisciplinary teams and models can be applied in other disease settings. And so I think as we continue to see new orphan drugs come onto the market, we do have a model that can be extrapolated and put in place for other disease states. With that, uh, that concludes my presentation. Uh, we will now move to the question and answer section of today's program.
2: Dr. Darris, we've had a question come in and and it's really asking about the 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 copy number of the SMN2 um, and the phenotype can that predict clinical severity
3: uh well the the SMN2 copy number is um is a pretty good phenotypic um predictor uh but it's not a perfect one um uh, and uh the reason for that is that is that not all copies of SMN2 are the same. So we say that uh, most patients we have uh, SMA type 1, they have uh, two copies of SMN2, uh, but there are um, patients we have SMA type 3, we have only two copies of SMN2 and so on. So um, there are copies that make a lot of full-length SMN protein the others that do not. So so we do have some overlap between the different distribution of the SMN2 copy numbers, and that's why in the clinic it's very hard for us to predict the phenotype based on the smn to copy number.
2: Great, thank you. Um, we've had two questions kind of come in around uh, SMA screening. Uh, one asking if we've seen any benefit in the in the population, and for us in in my area. Uh, we have found a few children. I think we found them earlier than we would have and been able to start treatment. Um, clinical justification for that, I mean, Dr. Daris, what I mean, are you seeing clinical justification for doing the screening? Uh,
3: absolutely. Uh, n- now that we have uh, two approved uh, treatments uh, for SMA, um, and given that Uh, All the evidence points to the idea that you need to to treat as early as possible. Uh, The newborn screening programs have become very, very important because if you make the diagnosis shortly after the baby is born and you intervene in the first month of life uh, using either gene therapy or nursing, uh, you may be able to prevent the disease. Um, We're still learning about this, but... From the Nurture study of nursing nursing, it seems that uh, that uh, the vast majority of the patients have been treated during the first six weeks of life. They seem to progress uh, almost normally as far as motor function is concerned. We don't have similar um, information about uh, about gene therapy because the experience is is limited, so it's only about a year or so. But I feel that we'll probably have similar results uh, if we use gene therapy. So the earlier you treat, the better it is. And therefore, uh, it is very important to be able to add uh, SMA to newborn screening programs throughout the country and throughout the world to be able to make the diagnosis as early as possible and inter- intervene uh, within the first few weeks of life.
2: So one of our, Dr. Daris, one of our listeners on the the program is asking, do you believe now that we're going to be doing more newborn screening, so it's happening in Massachusetts, uh, Missouri, Minnesota, and I think Utah, uh, do you believe that the estimates are underestimated and that when we start doing newborn screening we'll actually find more cases than maybe we had anticipated?
3: Well, it is um – it, it, it is possible, although um, um, the the estimates we have, in fact, may be uh, a little bit uh, overestimates. So and the reason is that uh, since the American College of Static Stereo- 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 and Gynecology uh, decided to recommend uh, preconception carrier screening, uh, many couples get screened before They have um, uh, they before having a child, and uh, they can take measures to avoid uh, the birth of a child uh, who has SMA. So it is possible that in fact um, the numbers may go down a little bit. For example, in a state where you expect um, five seven to uh, five seven births SMA births per year you may end up seeing three, four, five or something. Um, as far as having higher numbers, I, I, it, it depends, I think, on the country and the state and all that, but I, um, I, 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 I doubt it.
2: Okay, great. Well, that is all the time we have today for questions. Uh, we appreciate everyone joining you and just say thank you for your time and goodbye.